Second Corinthians chapter five. We'll start in verse 1 and read the verse 10. I will be commenting mostly on verse 10. Paul is speaking. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home, that's our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may be found naked... For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home with the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and be at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please the Lord. Verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness towards your children. We thank you for washing our sins away, Father God. We thank you for the blood of Christ that cries louder than the blood of Abel. We thank you, God, for your mercy and grace towards us, Father God. We thank you, God, that we will one day stand before you cleansed and whole because of what Christ has done, Father God. But at the same time, Lord, we will stand before you and have to give a personal account of our life. God, let this stir a reverent fear in each and every one of us. We thank you that grace, as Paul says, has prepared us for this very thing. God, we bless you. Breathe upon the text tonight, Father God. Open up our hearts to understand what it means to be a Christian that has to stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. The understanding of this text is not very simple at all. If you're familiar with Paul, he can write... He, he speaks in uh, very flowery expressions and metaphors that can transcend our understanding. We have to follow Paul very closely to grasp what he is saying. And he's saying a mouthful in this text. Uh, I'm not going to try to undermine, uh, take a low view of just how strong he's talking here. And it's not simple to convey his message in one sermon. I'm not going to try to do that. I'm going to stick more closely just to verse 10 and what it means that all, meaning Christians along with the rest of the world, have to stand before Christ one day when we fully know our sins are forgiven. But I ask a question. Does it stir up a sense of fear or at least concern that you have to stand before Christ? Your pastor won't be there. My wife won't be there. I'll have no one there to protect me. I will stand there on my own. I won't be afraid because of what Christ has done. I'll look at a Savior who loves me, not as a judge who has scrutinized my behavior. It's been dealt with. But should it and does it stir up a sense of concern? Hopefully you're saying yes, because that's why Paul is writing it. It should stir up a sense of concern that we have to stand before the Lord one day and give an account of our life. 
I want to get behind this a little more and find out exactly what it means for us. But to sum it up from the beginning, as to give some light to the subject, we're going to keep this simple tonight. We say this, all right, ask this. What is driving our life? What's the driving force behind your life today as you sit here? Or this week as you went to work or you went to school or whatever you did this week? What is the driving force? Paul says whether in the body or at home, his desire and aim was what? To be pleasing to the Lord. Do you know that every human being basically that has some kind of sense of reasoning about them. Something is driving their life. Every time you go to work, every time you're on the subway, every time you're on a bus, there's something in everybody that's driving them. Everybody. Something's motivating them. Some people are going and, and, and earning and they're doing because there's some kind of impulse in them that's driving them. But I can tell you this. There's only a handful of human beings that are driven by the passion and ambition to be pleasing to God. If that does not sound sweet to you, something's wrong. That is what should be driving us. The sweetness of, I want to please God. Let me give you an illustration. To try to bring some kind of understanding to what Paul is talking about in verse 10 about standing before the Lord and what it's going to mean. When I get to application more, we'll understand the illustration. But the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God is looking for us not to hit home runs. God is not looking for the home run hitter. He's not looking for the all-star or the all-star team. Uh, He's looking for the team player. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for the team play. He's not looking for the person who's out for himself to, to have a name for himself, to have renown, and to be known by everybody. He's, he's looking for the wallflowers that just are going to follow in his footsteps in the spirit of humility, serving God, and doesn't care if they ever got recognized at all. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 10. A person who gives himself for the sake of others And that is it. For the sake of building up others and encouraging others. That's what Paul is getting to. And as we get into the text, I'll bring that out a little more. There are four points I want to make on the Christian judgment. What it's not. That will be the first thing we talk about tonight. What Christians standing at the judgment seat, what it's not. We'll speak about what it is. Then we'll speak, what is this reward we're going to receive? What is this recompense that God's going to give us for our good or evil deeds? And then, why? Why all this? Why is Paul writing this? Then some closing remarks. But the first thing I want to address today is, what this is when a Christian stands before God, specifically Christ, to give an account of their life. Remember, we're not standing before a judge. Jesus Christ is our Savior. When you and I, if you're born again, you see Christ, you will see a Savior that loves you dearly, a friend that sticks closer than a brother. There'll be no fears whatsoever when we stand before God, but we will stand before God, and that should stir up enough reverence in us to find out, what is Paul talking about here? But what it's not is, first and foremost, it's not about sin. Sin has been thoroughly dealt with once and for all, forever, ever and ever, at the cross of Jesus Christ. Psalm 103 verses 10 to 12 say this. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, 
nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. Isaiah 38, 17 says this, Lo, for my own welfare, I had great bitterness. It is you who have kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, says God, and I will not remember your sins anymore. The reason the prophets of the Old Testament can speak on behalf of God is because they don't realize that one day a suffering servant is going to come and die for the sins of the world, and it's going to please God to crush Christ for our iniquities. That the chastisement we deserve is going to fall upon Christ. The writer of Hebrews captures the depth of this reality in 9.26. He says, otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sins by the sacrifice of himself. It goes on in 10.14. For by one offering, Jesus Christ has perfected for all time those who are sanctified or or those who come to him in faith were perfected you might not feel perfected I certainly don't but I know something better than feelings now I know truth I rather know I'm perfected in the eyes of God than the feeling because feelings come and go truth always stays the same it's a constant you can't change it God is truth he does not change I rather know we're perfected for all times, even when I stand at the judgment and I have to stand before Christ to give an account. I know I'm perfected. Praise God. I know. Can you say I'm perfected? Can you mean it with all your heart and say, praise God, I'm perfected? Because you are. We don't see it in each other. We usually see the negative stuff. We're good at that. But last he says this in verse 17. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer an offering for sin. Much more can be said on this, but the point is clear. The believer's sin, past, present, and future, is not an issue when we stand before God. At all. It never will be. Christ has paid the full price. Also, standing before the Lord on that day is not a competition of how I weighed up against other believers. Was I towing the line? Did I do a little better? Did other people do better than me? Is it a place to get puffed up and say, look, look how I ran the race. Did pretty good. Got a lot of notches under my belt. Led a lot of people to the Lord. I'm doing all right down here. Uh, it's not about that. All right? I know I just burst a bunch of your bubbles, but I'm sorry. All right? No accolades when you stand before Christ. Then what is it? If it's not about sin then what is this standing before the Lord to get recompense for the things done in the body? That means while we're alive and saved. Alive and saved. Whether good or evil. What is that? Well, it's not a judgment, it's an evaluation. Can you say that? It's not a judgment. It's an evaluation. That's what's going on here. But what's an evaluation of? It's an evaluation of our works. Or why we do anything. 
It's not an evaluation of what we have done. It's an evaluation of why we have done it. What's the driving force? Is that driving force of why we do anything to please the Lord? Whether in the body or out of the body, whether in heaven or on earth, is that the driving ambition? Because that's what the answer is. What's driving me? Let me give you a statement. And we'll go through some text to show you something that Paul's getting to. You can be a genuine believer and have selfish desires and personal ambitions that have nothing to do with the glory of God. Do you find that an oxymoron? Do you find that hard to believe? That you can be a genuine, born-again believer and have selfish desires and personal ambitions that have nothing to do with the glory of God. It gets worse. And how it gets worse? Because there are people that actually use God's glory as a pretext to elevating themselves. It happens in religion all the time. They throw out Jesus and they throw out God, but at the end of the day, they're really speaking about themselves. They're drawing attention to themselves. Listen to what First John says, or John, Third John says. Just want you to know that pride runs deep in the human heart and can seek its own glory, even while it claims God's glory. Listen to John three nine. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either, and that he forbid those who desire to do so, and puts them out of the church. This man seeks his own desires. He seeks, he loves to be first, First John, John teaches us. This is a man who's in the ministry. And he seeks to be first. He loves to be first. He loves to be recognized. All in the name of God. But John saw right through him. Listen to Paul in Philippians. Talking about other preachers. He says, some preachers, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife. But there are also some that do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love for God, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ. Listen to this. Proclaim the gospel out of selfish ambition rather than pure motives. I want you to know, I find that very hard to comprehend. It happens all the time. We know it's in the scriptures. We see it in life. But proclaim Christ and selfish ambition should not be on the same page, never mind in the same sentence, on the same line. Listen to 1 Corinthians 3. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now if any man builds on a foundation, this is Working for Christ, this is what it is. Now, if any man in his working for Christ builds on this foundation with gold, silver, or precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, that's, that's right ambitions and wrong ambitions. Gold, silver, and precious stones are right ambitions. Wood, hay, and straw are bad ambitions. He says this, each man's work will become evident 
for the day. You know what day he's talking about? 2 Corinthians 5.10, when we all stand before the Lord. That's the day he's talking about. For the day will show, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself, that's Jesus uh, 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 bringing a verdict down on their works. And the fire itself will test the quality, not the quantity, of each man's work. The quality of why he did anything. He goes on to say, If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. At 2 Corinthians 5.10, when he stands before Christ. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through the fire. I want you to know something, that these are some of the more extreme cases within Scripture about teachers and pastors and false teachers and false pastors. That's what Paul is talking about here. Or pastors and teachers with wrong motives that are misleading people, that are building up on Christ for their own personal recognition. That's what was going on in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. But there is a clear principle here about motives. All Christians can use their talents with a mixture of good and evil motives. Did you know that? All Christians. I can come up here and preach Christ and everything, but it could be all about me if I want it to be. We can turn this into a sideshow. And we've seen that. There's a little bit of Jesus and, and, and a lot of everything else. There's just enough truth to call a Christian. But at the end of the day, there's no Christ in it. All Christians can use their talents with a mixture of good and evil or bad motives. That is what Paul is getting about in 2 Corinthians as a whole. We can feel superior to others. We can abuse our power. We believe that in this church, we believe that this is widespread throughout the Christian church today. That we see much of this. 2 Corinthians is about pure motives versus impure uh, let me just give you a little fast history lesson into what Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians. It is basically a defense of himself. He's been attacked maliciously by false teachers and false brethren within the church. They're tearing down his apostolic authority. And you know how they're doing it? They're going by his appearance. If you know anything about Paul, he didn't appear much as a man. He didn't appear much as a speaker. He didn't speak well. He didn't articulate his words well. Uh, He was probably a sort of, not much to look at. And they mocked him by his appearance. And the people were mocking him, they were super apostles. He calls them super apostles in the 11th and 12th chapter. And that these men were so trained in rhetorics, they were so trained in speeches, they were so trained in speaking, they could captivate an audience. They were charismatic. And they captivated the minds of the Corinthians and turned them away from the Apostle Paul. And that's what Paul is speaking over. He goes, what drives me is not the appearance of men. What drives me is I have to stand before God one day and give an account of my life. No matter what the world throws at me, I won't be crushed. No matter what the false apostles say about me, makes no difference. I know what drives me. And I and every other human being has to stand before God on that day and give an account of every word they say. 
we should all sit under such integrity. All of us should. The pure motive is this. That everything he did was to be pleasing to the Lord. Whether it's here on earth or in heaven, whether it's by faith and not by sight, understand something. Paul is saying, whether I can see Christ or not, integrity still holds on. I'm going to serve Christ. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to serve him and please him. Whether I see him or not, I know I'll stand before the Lord on that day. Let me give you a little insight into saving faith. I will ask you today, are you saved? Do you believe that Christ hung on the cross 2,000 years ago and died for your sins? Do you believe that the blood that poured down on the cross that day was shed on your behalf? Can you believe it? Can you see it by faith? Say yes or no. Then understand something. That same faith that can look back 2,000 years ago and see the blood dripping down on our behalf is the same faith that can look into eternity, into the future, and look at we're standing right at the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of our life. If I can look back and see Christ on the cross, I can look forward to see Christ on the throne. If I can look back and see Christ on, on the cross, I can look forward to see myself give an account to Christ on the throne. Faith doesn't go from here to there. It goes from here to there to there. Some people will say, I I don't think much about that. I can't picture that. If you can see the cross, then you can see the throne. Amen? Amen? Nothing changes. That's what saving faith is. It's the hope and the guarantee of the things to come, Hebrews teaches us. It's the actions that speak louder than the words. And they say, I want to be a team player in the body of Christ. I want to please the Lord. I want to encourage others. I don't need to be the front man. I'll take the back seat. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians. This is what's going to be judged. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also look out for the interest of others. So much more can be said, but I believe that the what of that day is clearly visible now. So then what is the reward? I should say the why of that day is clearly visible. Why do we do anything in the body of Christ? Why do we do anything? I want you to know that, and I speak for John too, I use the word petrified, not that I'm petrified, but I'm petrified that I know I have to stand before God and give an account of how I pastored people. The thought of misleading one soul for the sake of personal gain, I'd rather die than mislead one human being. To say a misleading word, a misleading sentence, and draw people away from following Christ and the simplicity of Christ to build our own ministry or build our own desires and our own ambitions in the name of Christ. That's what's happening in the church today. And that's what Paul is getting to. These false apostles, they were building themselves up. And Paul knew the only thing he could say is that one day they'll stand before Christ. 
and give an answer. So what is this reward? What is this reward for serving Christ and pleasing Him? That's the only ambition Paul is talking about. With this sense of humility and brokenness. With a genuine love and affection for God and His people. And to serve them. Not to be served, but to serve. That's, that's the Christian motto. That's, we learn that from Christ. The Christ did not come to serve to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for others. And after he washes his disciples' feet, he says, Blessed are you if you know them and do these. That's what our call is. But what is the reward? It seems that every believer receives salvation. Uh, that's perfect peace with no regrets. And what is this reward we're, we're going to see? We're not going to be afraid when we stand before God. As we're evaluated, we're not going to be afraid. But I'll tell you this, we will find out. We will find out exactly what was going on in our life. We will find out, was I doing this for the Lord? Did I preach year in and year out just for God and His people? Did the worship leader sing year in and year out for the sake of just God and His people? Did the evangelist go out on the street and evangelize For nothing else but the sake of God and his people? Did the people who serve at the dinner and people who cook, did you do it just for the glory of God and for his people? The person who sits at the door and says, hello, the people in the soundboard, the people have done anything ever, one thing for God, we'll find out. Did you do it for God? Or did somehow or another we get put into the equation? That's what we're going to find out. At the judgment seat of Christ, all motives will be evaluated. And Jesus will show the integrity of all our hearts. That should capture our imagination. Let me give you an illustration. of. I'll do the best I can to. What is this reward? We're born again. We're forgiven. We're going to heaven, right? That's enough, isn't it? Let's just go on. Say la vie. Let's sing until we die. We'll go to heaven. I'll meet you there. You meet me there. But doesn't the text bring us into something deeper here? I don't want to miss out on anything. So what is it? Am I going to look at him and say, wow, I got more than he got? Look at him. Look at this poor soul. He got one city. I got ten. This is what it means. This is the best illustration I have ever read. It goes like this. Many people can go to a symphony and listen to the orchestra and know it's beautiful music and enjoy it. But not everybody enjoys the symphony the same. Some people go and hear a concert and the quality of their hearing and their quality of their enjoyment is so much more superior than someone else's. Isn't that true? That's what heaven will be like. We're all going to enjoy it. But others are going to enjoy it more. That's the reward. I can't tell you that that's exactly what it is, because I don't know. But that's a good illustration. And when I read that, 
well over 20 years ago and always stuck in my mind. That we will enjoy Christ the same way we hungered for him here. The same way we loved him here. If I have a low view of the Lord now, even though when I'm saved and I go to heaven, I'm not going to enjoy him the way I could have. That will be determined by how I serve him here in faithfulness. That should really catch our attention. But why? Why all? Why is Paul even writing this? Well, first of all, it's to quicken our motives to holy love of God and service to God. To be zealous for God. To serve the Lord. With a full understanding that we will give an account. As I said last week, expectation is not as great as examination. And we gave the illustration of a child, a parent's asking the child, would you uh, go clean your room and uh, I'll just trust that you're going to do it. I expect you to do it, but I'm not going to examine it. I asked the parents, how many children would clean their room if they're not going to examine their room? Chances are none. But if you, they know you're going to be marching up there at 530, and it better be done or otherwise... That examination, they know they're going to get to work. In a sense, that's what it's like for us. Paul is using this to really drive home the point that we will be examined. And it should grab our attention. Let me close with some thoughts here, okay? First of all, Jesus teaches that many who are first today, guess what? Are going to be what? Let me say it again. Many who are... Do you know there are people that have worldwide ministries, and they, they might be saved, I don't know who they are, I'm just using this as an example. But they might be at the end of the row. And you'll have somebody who's just faithfully served God from pure intentions and f- pure motives. They're not the gifted evangelist, they're not the gifted teacher, they're not the gifted preacher, they're not the gifted uh, whatever it might be. But they just, they love God and everything they do, they do because they want to be pleasing to the Lord. Do you know they might enjoy heaven much more than the worldwide minister? God knows how to reward. No one's rewarded on their gifting. We're rewarded on our service from our heart to the Lord. There's no more serious sermon that any man can preach, or I'll say it for myself, there's no more serious sermon that, no, there's no more serious sermon that a Christian minister can preach to a non-believer than they have to repent of their sins or be condemned. There is no more serious sermon than to tell a man or a woman, encourage them that they're accountable to God for their sins, and they have to Follow Christ. Likewise, there's no more serious sermon that a minister can give to God's children than this one. As a Christian, you will never hear a more serious sermon than what Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians 5.10. That each of us will have to stand before God 
to give an account of the motives of our life while we were Christians. Does that grab you? Does it grab your attention? It should. That's what it's meant to do. That they're all going to appear, each one of us will appear before Christ to give a personal account of our inner life and what drives us. What is the driving force of our life? And this will show how much they desire to be pleasing to the Lord. I close with these words. Where is our life? How pleasing to the Lord are we? Is it the driving ambition of our life? Should it be the driving ambition of our life? Could it be the driving ambition? Maybe that's just my job. Maybe it's not everybody else's job. Is Paul just talking about the Apostle Paul? Is he talking about all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of their inner attitudes, whether good or bad? We need to really take an inventory of ourselves and see where we are in this. And that our God is more than gracious and more than merciful and more than wants to just get our attention and say, I got you. He's always encouraging us to strive higher, to live higher, to follow him, and to do everything we do to know the sweetness of what it means to be pleasing to the Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you give us such a great example of the Apostle Paul that suffered so many hardships in his life. And the motivating factor is that he just wanted to be pleasing to you. That he saw himself standing before the throne on that day, and all he wanted to hear was, Paul, well done, good and faithful servant. I pray that all of us, Father, can put ourselves in the Apostle Paul's feet, that we too can see ourselves at the throne. And say, God, help me by grace to live for you. God, help us by grace to hear those precious words. Well done, good and faithful servant. Put in our heart, Father God, a great desire and ambition to be pleasing to you in everything we do. In every interpersonal relationship, Father God, let us do it to be pleasing to you, Father God. Let us just be a team player in the kingdom of God, Father God. Let us just be the one that encourages everybody else as you encourage us from the inside out, Father God. Strengthen us in this task, Father God. I thank you, Father God, for the great example of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to get ready for communion if we can have the ushers. Why don't you and I just reflect on the message and how God spoke to us as we were listening to it about being pleasing to the Lord. As we partake of the body and the blood, let's just reflect on what God is speaking to us. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you with this uh, memorial, Lord God, of the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, God, for the forgiveness of our sins, for the ushering in of the new covenant, Father God, where you remember our iniquities and our lawless deeds no more, Lord God, and is now able to prepare us to stand before you, God, with that inner motive alone that drives us to be pleasing unto you. God, help us in this endeavor. 
Our flesh is weak, Father. It is just so weak. We're so distracted, Lord God. God, help us to always be single-minded of one heart as we follow you, God. Bless us as we partake, Father God. Encourage us from the inside out, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.